Thank you, thank you. Shabbat shalom, Shabbat shalom. Rabbi Jonathan said to me, don't spend any time thanking me. You have a very brief time to talk about the most important things in the world, so just talk about them. So I will. I will not thank you, but it is nice to be here. Consider this a report from the front, my friends. I've been on the front lines of what it means to be a Jewish spiritual seeker for half a century now, and I want to tell you something about it. I want to talk about what it means to be a person of faith in the 21st century. The 20th century, after all, was devoted, traditional religion devoted itself in the 20th century to fighting two great battles, which were the battles for survival of religion. They were, of course, the battle against Darwin, and by Darwin, I don't only mean evolutionary biology, but everything that goes with it, the age of the earth, the geology, the astrophysics, as opposed to the literal reading of the Bible, the world created in six days, 5,700 years ago, and the battle against biblical criticism. Did God write the Bible? Did God give the Bible? If God didn't write the Bible, why do we have to do these things? Traditional religion decisively lost both of those battles over the course of the 20th century. We might think, therefore, that religion would be a wounded being, hardly a force at all in human affairs in the 21st century. Lo and behold, religion is more important to us in the 21st century than anybody would have predicted in 1950. In a negative way, religion is a dangerous force in the world. We know how much, how much wickedness is created in the name of religion, but also in a good and constructive way. Let me give you a tip. When religions act alone, they are dangerous. When religions act together, they usually act for good. But what does it mean to be a person of faith in the 21st century? What's left? What can we talk about? How do you talk about God in our century after Darwin, after biblical criticism, after all the questions, after, after all the afters, as a famous Yiddish poem used to say, after all the afters, what faith do I have left? I can't talk about God. I can't talk about God because of my grandma Green. I had a grandmother on my father's side who was an atheist already in the old country. And when I decided to go to rabbinical school, she wrote me a letter in her night school English, all one sentence, which I still have. It begins like this. Dear Arthur, I hear you still want to be a rabbi. I would be prouder of you if you would be a teacher and teach people things that are true, because if there was a God in the sky, he would have been shot down by Sputnik already, period. <laughs> You know, what, you know what year that letter was written. Some of you are old enough to remember. I try very hard not to believe in a God who could be shot down by Sputnik. I therefore find that I can't use the G-O-D word very well with you. The G-O-D word, after all, is not our word originally. It comes from the Germanic and Norse languages. It was first used to describe the gods of the ancient North Country. We Westerners, we Jews, when we came into the Western world, we Ashkenazim, first in Germany and then Eastern Europe, we adopted that word God, or God. But I want to talk to you about three Hebrew words instead. Because to do Jewish, you have to do it in Hebrew. The authentic Jewish tradition is always rooted in the Hebrew sources. <clears throat> I've spent my life studying the Hebrew sources, immersed in the Hebrew sources. So I want to talk about three words for God in Hebrew. The first one, of course, you can't pronounce. Now it should just be silent and sit down. You can't pronounce the word. That's the name of God, Yud, but spelled by the Hebrew letters yod heh vav heh yod heh vav heh mis, mistransliterated into English as Jehovah. But the name itself, we're not allowed to pronounce. Only the high priest on Yom Kippur could pronounce it in the Holy of Holies. And when the people heard him pronounce the name, they would all fall on their faces and say, Baruch Shem Kivod Malchotol Alam Blessed is God's glory forever, as we say after the Shema. 
because there's a great mystery in that name. But that name, here's my Shabbos blackboard right here. On my Shabbos blackboard, if I want to write in Hebrew the word for was, I write haya, hey yud, hey. I want to indicate the present tense, I write hey vav, hey, hove, the presence. I want to indicate the future, will be, I write yud, hey vav, hey. That means will be. I take those three verbs, those three words, haya, hove, yeah, yeah, and smoosh them together in a form that doesn't exist, and I get yud, hey, vav, hey. Which is to say the name of God should not be translated G-O-D. It should be translated was, is, will be. Blessed are you, was, is, will be. It's hard to say. The closest we get in English is being with a capital B. God is being. Being is God. In fact, the letters yud hey vav hey, if you turn them around and make havaya hey vav yud hey, it means existence. It means being. But when they're transposed into a name, they become a proper name, they take on a mystery that's more than the totality of all beings. Being, being itself, is more than the totality of the various beings around the room. That somehow is something of what, of what that name yod heh means. Now, if you take those letters, they originally, by the way, yod heh wow hey. Vav is a later pronunciation, but it was a wow. yod heh wow hey, And you think about how they sound. The yod is yah. The hey is ha. The wow is wah. And the hey is ha. What do you notice? They're all breathing letters. There's not a single, there's not a single chunky dental or labial or, 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 or guttural letter among them. You cannot say the name of God, but you can breathe the name of God. So now we're going to try it as a breathing exercise. The first letter is yah. Take it in. And hear the yah. Now. Now the wow. So the whole name is We say Nishmat Kol the breath of all life praises your name. We mean the breath of all life is your name. Your name is the breath of life. God is nothing other than the breath of life or the breath of existence or the breath of being as, as elusive as a breath. So that name, that name is, is, was, will be. But God says to Moses, I will be whatever I will be. If you think you can take that verb, is, was, will be, and make it into a noun and say, that's what God is, I got God's name, I will run off and conjugate myself and be a verb again. You will never catch me. That's what the name of God means. All of being and totally elusive totally unable to be grasped by us and held down. The second Hebrew word for God is Elohim. Elohim is the generic term for God. It can be our God, it can be any God. A God is called an Elohim. The first thing you notice about the word Elohim is, it's plural, it's plural. So when you open the Torah, Bereshit bara Elohim, in the beginning God created, you are immediately violating grammar. Because you're saying bara, a singular verb with a plural noun. Why isn't it baru Elohim? No, 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 you can't do that. It's bara Elohim because the word Elohim is a collective. It's like the Greek word pantheon, by the way. All of the gods in one. There used to be many gods. There was a god of war, a god of love, a god of Canaan, a god of Mesopotamia, a god of Ugarit, a god of the crops, a god of the fields, a god of the sky. 
but then they all become one. We say there is only one, but we retain the plurality in the word, the memory of the many gods. So all the disparate character of the gods have to become one. That one God contains them all. It contains the totality of being, but the memory of multiplicity is still there in the oneness. But the Zohar, the great work of Kabbalah, says the word name Elohim is made up of two Hebrew words. Again, my Shabbos black word, Elohim, two words, me and Eleh. Me means who? With a question mark, who is it? And Eleh means these. Who and these. God is who and these. These is all the images of God we have, all the concepts of God we have, all the ways we can depict God. Oh, that fellow with a beard on the sky, in the sky, you know that guy of your childhood, and the young God, the female God, if you want, and God as the sun, and God as the moon, and God as the river of life, and God as the tree of existence, all the images and metaphors you can think of for God, and all the different names, all of them together are Ela, are these, are these, the ways we think of God, but me is the question beyond, the elusive, there's always a mystery beyond. And to have God, you have to have me and Eila together. And then the Zohar says something absolutely devastating. When Israel made the golden calf, they said, Eila Elohecha Yisrael, these are your gods, O Israel. They worship the these without the who. And that's what idolatry is. Idolatry is worshiping the these without the who, thinking you know, thinking you've captured God, when the elusive question is no longer there. Any religion, my friend, can become an idolatry, even ours. One of the great rabbis, one of the great East European Orthodox rabbis in the early 20th century asked the question, why did Moses break the tablets? Moses comes down from the mountain, sees the idols, but why did they break the tablets? Because he looked at the people down there and he said, oh my God, they're idolaters. Think what they're going to do when they get hold of these. And he smashed them. Because our religion too can be made into an idolatry. So that's Elohim, that's yud heh and that's Elohim. And now the third name for God in Hebrew, the one we pronounce, the euphemism. Instead of saying, we say Adonai. We say Adonai. Adonai is, substitute, is the substitution for yud heh and it's been around for a very long time. It was there already two centuries before the common era when they translated the Bible into Greek, the Septuagint. Every time it said yud heh they translated it Kyrios, my Lord, my Lord, because that's what Adonai means, my Lord. The rabbis have a wonderful story about that. When Adam was created, God was very proud of his new creation. He called the angels over and said, hey, look what I created. He's so smart, this human creature of mine. And the angel said, come on, we live in heaven. We know more than he does. And God said, you want to see? And God brought forth a little four-legged animal who walked across the stage, and God said to the angels, what's that? The angels had never been to earth. They didn't know. And what's that animal? The angels didn't know. Then God calls Adam and said, what's that? Adam says, that is a dog. This is a cat. This is a giraffe. This is an elephant. And then God says to Adam, what should you be called? And Adam says, I should be called Adam because I come from Adama, from earth, which is to say Adam means earthling. And then Adam, God says to Adam, and what should I be called? And that's a wonderful moment. Adam could have said anything. Irving, <laughs> maybe Zelda, who knows? 
And Adam, without missing a beat, says, You should be called Adonai because you are Lord over all your works. Which is to say the rabbis in ancient times understood that it's we who create that master-servant relationship with God. It's we who declare God master because we need to be servants. We need to submit. We need to be able to bow down to someone. And so we take that mystery of existence and we call it Adon because we need to. Because religion is about submission. Is about, I know I'm immortal. I know I don't have all the answers. It's standing in the face of the mystery. It's standing in the face of the great mystery beyond and asking, where do we all come from? Where are we all going? Why are we here? The great question of the mystics How did the one become the many? If there was only one, and the mystic knows from experience that all of being is one, there was only one yud heh there was only one mysterious being, where did multiplicity come from? We have an old story about that. In the beginning, God created the first day, the second day, we just sang the seventh day part of it. But there's a new story now. We came maybe out of a big bang somewhere, we came out of the swirling of gases, we came out of the emergence of the first particles, we came out of those first, those first, those first great tumultuous seconds in which the fire was beyond what we can imagine and somehow, somehow this swirling bit of, bit of rock landed somewhere and became earth. That story, and then how, how life emerged in this earth, how the first creatures emerged, how they became more complicated, how creatures under the sea finally had the courage to come up onto dry land, some of them taking root out of the soil and becoming trees, some of them learning to nourish themselves from those trees and becoming animal life, all of them coming from those same simple single-cell beings, those same origins. My friends, that's the great sacred story. That's the great sacred story. We religious people have not really learned to embrace evolution yet and to understand what a sacred tale it is. We have something to add to Darwin, and that is how to tell that story with the eyes of wonder. How to tell that story with your eyes open and see how magnificent it is, how absolutely wondrous it is, how it could, t- how it could be, how birds, bees and bees and flowers somehow discovered one another and their interdependence and how that works and how climate combinations of products and in, in, of plant life and animal life and various climate conditions work, how, how this world has come to be, how the evolution from simple forms of life into the great complexity of the human mind happened and how the evolutionary process is still going on and we are somewhere in the course of it, not the end of it, not the fi- final product, but we are still part of an evolving world. That's the great story of God. That's the great story of the One. That's the great story of being with a capital B. It's terribly important that we learn to appreciate that story and that we see it through a sacred lens. If we do not learn that life on this planet is holy and that everything contains the divine spirit, we will not survive as a species. The most urgent task of religion in the 21st century is that of helping us change our behavior, helping us change the way we interact with the natural surroundings of which we are a part and out of which we come. If we don't change our behavior drastically, we all know we're not going to make it.
And that change in behavior is not going to come about by governmental responsibility, God knows, because our governments are terribly inadequate to do it. And big forces, great forces in the society, economic forces are, are dead set against what we all know has to happen. Unless there's a deep change of heart in the human community, we will not make it. That change of heart will only come in a coming together of the great religious teachings and the great religious traditions because they lie near the heart of where the human mind is. How we change human opinion, how we change the symbolic structures and the way we think and the way we live in the world. So therefore, the task of religion, I believe, is the most urgent of human tasks. And that's why being a human being who thinks about religious questions in the 21st century with an open mind and an open heart is the most important work to do. Help us be part of it. Take it all seriously. There is wisdom in the ancient traditions of humanity. There is wisdom in our ancient tradition that if we turn our hearts to it and study it, can change our lives, can open us in new ways, can make us more thinking people and more caring people, and can also help us, help us channel ourselves toward this new task, toward this new task of thinking about this world as a sacred place, as a place that contains that, uh, that irrepressible and yet ultimately undiscoverable spirit that's the oneness of all being, the one that lies within us, beyond us, behind us, above us, below us, and is with us at every moment if we only learn to open our hearts. Thank you. Shabbat shalom.